Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. So um, Amy Bender is the author of the novels The Particular Sadness of Lemon Cake, a New York Times bestseller, and An Invisible Sign of My Own, and of uh, the collections The Girl in the Flamble Skirt and Willful Creatures. Her work has been widely anthologized and has been translated into 16 languages. She lives here in Los Angeles. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Amy Bender. So nice. Thank you, Noel. Thank you all for coming. What an amazing crowd of people. I feel honored. This is like my first night out in months. Um, and it felt really hard to manage it. So I feel really happy to be here and it's actually, it's okay. It's, it's working. Um, so, uh, I'm just gonna say something else I can't remember. Um, I'm, and thanks to Skylight, you know, it's a great bookstore, as you all know. A great gift to Los Angeles. So I'm going to read a story in here and um, then answer questions and talk and have time to sign and everything. <laughs> I have to leave at 9.30 because I've been going to bed at 9. <laughs> and I really feel like if I don't go to bed before like 10.30, tomorrow is going to be so hard. So I just, yeah. It's a very careful equilibrium at the moment. Um, so, okay, this story came from, uh, there's a magazine called Black Book, and they paired writers and artists, and they kind of said you could pick a painting by this artist and write a story about the painting. And there was an artist named Amy Cutler who I'd already spoken to and really liked her work. And um, I got to pick a painting of hers, and, um, the one I picked was called Tiger Mending, so she started me out with a fantastic title, and uh, then the idea was just to write a story. And I think Black Book still exists. Does anyone know for sure? Yeah, it does. Yeah, good, good. Because I really was, it was very nice for a, a glossy magazine to be investing time into um, pairing writers and artists and supporting both, because that doesn't happen as much in, anymore, as we all know. So the story is called Tiger Mending. And I recommend looking up the painting online at some point because it's a really, really beautiful image. It gave me a lot just from the get-go. My sister got the job. She's the overachiever and she went to med school for two years before she decided she wanted to be a gifted seamstress. What, they said on the day she left? A surgeon, they told her. You could be a tremendous surgeon. But she said she didn't like the late hours. She got too tired around midnight. She has small motor skills better than a machine. She'll fix your handkerchief so well you can't even see the stitches, like she became one with the handkerchief. I once split my lip, jumping from the tree, and she sewed it up with ice and a needle she'd run through the fire. I barely even had a scar, just the thinnest white line. 
So of course, when the two women came through the sewing school, they spotted her first. She was working on her final exam, a lime-colored ball gown with tiny diamonds sewn into the collar, and she was fully absorbed in it, constructing infinitesimal loops while they hovered with their severe hair and heady tree smell, like bamboo, my sister said, watching her work. My sister so steady she didn't even flinch, but everyone else in class seized upon the distraction, staring at the two Amazonian women, both six feet tall and strikingly beautiful. When I met them later, I felt like I'd landed straight inside a magazine ad. At the time, I was working at Burger King as block manager. There were two on the block. <laughs> and I took any distraction offered me and used it to its hilt. Once, a guy came in and ordered a Big Mac, and for two days, I told that story to every customer, and it's not a good story. There's so rarely any intrigue in the shabberdash world of burger warming. You take what you can get. But my sister was born with supernatural focus, and the two women watched her and her alone. Who can compete? My sister's won all the contests she's ever been in, not because she's such an outrageous competitor, but because she's so focused in this gentle way. Why not win? Sometimes it's all you need to run the fastest, or to play the clearest piano, or to ace the standardized test, pausing at each question until it has slid through your mind to exit as a penciled-in circle. In low, sweet voices, the women asked my sister if she'd like to see Asia. She finally looked up from her work. Is there a sewing job there? They nodded. She said she'd love to see Asia. She'd never left America. They said, well, it's a highly unusual job. May I bring my sister, she asked. She's never traveled either. The two women glanced at each other. What does your sister do? She's manager of the Burger Kings down on 4th. <laughs> Their disapproval was faint but palpable, especially in the upper lip. She would simply keep you company, they asked. What we are offering you, they said, is a position of tremendous privilege. Aren't you interested in hearing about it first? My sister nodded lightly. It sounds very interesting, she said, but I cannot travel without my sister. This is true. My sister, the one with that incredible focus, has a terrible fear of airplanes. Terrible. Incapacitating. The only way she can relax on a flight is if I am there, because I am always, always having some kind of crisis, and she focuses in and fixes me and forgets all her own concerns. <laughs> I become her ripped hemline. In general, I call her every night and we talk for an hour, which is 45 minutes of me and 15 minutes of her stirring her tea, which she steeps with the kind of Zen patience that would make Buddhists sit up in envy and then breathe through their envy and then move past their envy. <laughs> I'm really, really lucky she's my sister. Otherwise, no one like her would ever give someone like me the time of day. The two Amazonian women, lousy with confidence, with their ridiculous cheekbones in these long yellow print dresses, said, okay. They observed my sister's hands, quiet in her lap. Do you get along with animals? They asked, and she said yes. She loved every animal. Do you have allergies to cats? They asked, and she said no. She was allergic only to pine nuts. The slightly taller one reached into her dress pocket, a pocket so well hidden inside the fabric it was like she was reaching into the ether of space, and from it her hand returned with an airplane ticket. We are very happy to have found you, they said. The additional ticket will arrive tomorrow. My sister smiled. I know her. She was probably terrified to see that ticket, and also she really wanted to return to the diamond loops. She probably wasn't even that curious about the new job yet. 
She was and is stubbornly, mind-numbingly interested in the present moment. When we were kids, I used to come home and she'd be at the living room window. It was the best window in the apartment, looking out in the far distance on the tip of a mountain. For years, I tried to get her to play with me, but she was unplayable. She stared out that window, never moving, for hours. By night, when she'd returned, I'd usually injured myself in some way or another, and I'd ask her about it while she tended to me. She said the reason she could pay acute attention to me now was because of that window. It empties me out, she said, which scared me. No, she said to my frightened face as she sat on the edge of my bed and ran a washcloth over my forehead. It's good, she said. It makes room for other things. Me? I asked with hope, and she nodded. You. We had no parents by that point. One had left, and the other had died at the hands of a surgeon, which is the real reason my sister stopped medical school. That night she called me up and told me to quit my job, which is what I'd been praying for for months, that somehow I'd get a magical phone call telling me to quit my job because I was going on an exciting vacation. <laughs> I threw down my BK apron, packed and prepared as long an account of my life complaints as I could. On the plane I asked my sister what we were doing, what her job was, but she refolded her tray table and said nothing. Asia, I said, what country? She stared out the porthole. It was the pilot who told us as we buckled our seatbelts. We were heading to Kuala Lumpur, straight into the heart of Malaysia. Wait, where's Malaysia again? I whispered, and my sister drew a map on the napkin beneath her ginger ale. <laughs> During the flight, I drank Bloody Marys while my sister embroidered a doily. Even the other passengers seemed soothed by watching her work. I whispered all my problems into her ear, and she returned them to me in slow sentences that did the work of a lullaby. My eyes grew heavy. During the descent, she gave the doily to the man across the aisle, worried about his ailing son, and the needlework was so elegant it made him feel better just to hold it. That's the thing with handmade items. They still have the person's mark on them, and when you hold them, you feel less alone. This is why everyone who eats a Whopper leaves a little more depressed than they were when they came in. <laughs> At the airport curbside, a friendly driver picked us up and took us to a cheerful green hotel where we found a note on the bed telling my sister to be ready at 6 a.m. sharp. It didn't say I could come, but bright and early the next morning, scrubbed and fed, we faced the two Amazons in the lobby who looked scornfully at me and my unsteady hands. I sort of pick at my hair a lot. And she asked my sister why I was there. Can she watch, she asked, and they said they weren't sure. She, they said, might be too anxious. I swear, I won't touch anything, I said. This is a private operation, they said. My sister breathed. I work best when she's nearby, she said. Please. And like usual, it was the way she said it, in that gentle voice that had a back to it. They opened the car door. Thank you, my sister said. They blindfolded us for reasons of security, and we drove for more than an hour down winding, screeching roads, parking finally in a place that smelled like garlic and fruit. In front of a stone mansion, two more women dressed in printed robes waved as we removed our blindfolds. These two were short, delicate, calm. They led us into the living room, and we hadn't been there for more than 10 minutes when we heard the moaning. A bad moaning sound, a real bad, real mournful moaning, coming from the north outside that reminded me of the worst loneliness, the worst long lonely night. The Amazonian with the short shining cap of hair nodded. Those are the tigers, she said. What tigers, I said. Shh, she said, 
I will call her Sloan for no reason except that it's a good name for an intimidating person. <laughs> Sloan said, shh, quiet now. She took my sister by the shoulders and led her to the wide window that looked out on the land, as if she knew instinctively how wise it was to place my sister at a window. Watch, Sloan whispered. I stood behind. The two women from the front walked into view and settled on the ground near some clumps of ferns. They waited. They were very still-minded, like my sister, that stillness of mind, that ability I will never have to sit still, that ability to have the hands forget they are hands. They closed their eyes, and the moaning I'd heard before got louder, and then in the distance, I mean way off, the moaning grew even louder, almost unbearable to hear, and limping from the side lumbered two enormous tigers, wailing as if they were dying. As they got closer, you could see that their backs were split open, sort of peeled, as if someone had torn them in two. The fur was matted, and the stripes hung loose like packing tape ripped off their bodies. The women did not seem to move, but two glittering needles worked their way out of their knuckles, climbing up out of their hands, and one of the tigers stepped closer. I thought I'd lose it. He was easily four times the first woman's size, and she was small, a tiger's snack, but he limped over in his giantness and fell into her lap, let his heavy striped head sink to the ground. She smoothed the stripe back over, and the moment she pierced his fur with the needle, those big cat eyes dripped over with tears. It was very powerful. It brought me to tears, too. Those expert hands as steady as if he were a pair of pants while the tiger's enormous head hung to the ground. My sister didn't move, but I cried and cried seeing the giant broken animal resting in the lap of the small, precise woman. It is so often surprising who rescues you at your lowest moment. When our father died in surgery, the jerk at the liquor store suddenly became the nicest man alive and gave us free cranberry juice for a year. What happened to them? I asked Sloane. Why are they like that? She lifted her chin slightly. We do not know, but they emerge from the forests, peeling, more and more of them, always torn at the central stripe. Do they ever eat people? I asked. Not so far, she said. But they do not respond well to fidgeting, she said, watching me clear out my thumbnail with my other thumbnail. Oh, I'm not doing it, I said. You have not been asked, she said. They're so sad, said my sister. Well, wouldn't you be, said Sloane, if you were a tiger, unpeeling? She put a hand on my sister's shoulder. When the mending was done, all four, women and beasts, sat in the sun for at least half an hour, tiger's chests heaving, women's hands clutched in their fur. The day grew warm. In the distance, the moaning began again, and two more tigers limped up while the first two stretched out and slept. The women sewed the next two and the next. One had a bloody rip across its white belly. After a few hours of work, the women put their needles away, the tigers raised themselves up, and without any lick or acknowledgement, walked off deep into that place where tigers live. The women returned to the house. Inside, they smelled so deeply and earthily of cat that they were almost unrecognizable. They also seemed lighter, nearly giddy. It was lunchtime. They joined us at the table where Sloane served an amazing soup of curry and prawns. It is an honor, said Sloane, to mend the tigers. I see, said my sister. You will need very little training since your skill level is already so high. But my sister seemed frightened in a way I hadn't seen before. She didn't eat much of her soup, and she returned her eyes to the window to the tangles of fluttering leaves. 
I would have to go and find out, she said finally when the chef entered with a tray of mango tartlets. Find out what? Why they unpeel, she said. She hung her head as if she was ashamed of her interest. You are a mender, said Sloane gently, not a zoologist. I support my sister's interest in the source, I said. Sloane flinched every time I opened my mouth. <laughs> the source, my sister echoed. The world has changed, said Sloane, passing a mango tartlet to me reluctantly, which I ate pronto. It was unlike my sister to need the cause. She was fine usually with just how things were. But she whispered to me as we roamed outside looking for clues of which we found none. She whispered that she felt something dangerous in the unpeeling and she felt she would have to know about it in order to sew the tiger suitably. I'm not worried about the sewing, she said. I'm worried about the gesture I place inside the thread. I nodded. I'm a good fighter is all. I don't care about thread gestures, but I'm willing to throw a punch at some tiger asshole if need be. <laughs> we spent the rest of the day outside, but there were no tigers to be seen. Where they lived was somewhere far, far off, and the journey they took to arrive here must have been the worst time of their lives, ripped open like that, suddenly prey to vultures and other predators, when they were usually the ones to instill fear. We slept that night at the mansion, in feather beds so soft I found them impossible to sleep in. Come morning, Sloane had my sister join the two women outside, and I cried again, watching the big tiger head at her feet while she sewed with her usual stillness. The three together were unusually productive, and sewn tigers piled up around them. But instead of that giddiness that showed up in the other women, my sister grew heavier that afternoon, and she said she was sure she was doing something wrong. Oh no, said Sloane, serving us tea. You were remarkable. I am missing something, said my sister. I'm missing something important. Sloane retired for a nap, but I snuck out. I had been warned, but really they were treating me like shit anyway. <laughs> I walked a long distance, but I'm a sturdy walker, and I trusted where my feet went, and I did not like the sight of my sister staring into her teacup. I did not like the feeling it gave me of worrying. Before I left, I sat her in front of the window and told her to empty herself, and her eyes were grateful in a way I was used to feeling in my own face, but not accustomed to seeing in hers. I walked for hours, and the wet hair clung to my shirt and hair. I took a nap inside some ferns. The sun was setting, and I would have walked all night, but when I reached a cluster of trees, something felt different. There was no wailing yet, but I could feel the stirring before the wailing, which is almost worse. I swear I could hear the dread. I climbed up a tree and waited. I don't know what I expected. People, I guess. People with knives cutting in. I did not expect to see the tigers themselves, jumpy, agitated, yawning their mouths beyond wide, the wildness in their eyes, and finally the yawning so large and insistent that they split their own backs in two. They all did it, one after the other, as if they wanted to pull the fur off their backs, and then, amazed at what they'd done, the wailing began. One by one, they left the trees and began their slow journey to be mended. It left me with the oddest, most unsettled feeling. I walked back when it was night under a half moon and found my sister still at the window. They do it to themselves, I whispered to her, and she took my hand. Her face lightened. Thank you, she said. She tried to hug me, but I pulled away. No, I said. And in the morning, I left for the airport.
questions? I like this part. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Mr. Tim Rose. <laughs> Eugene. It's true. Often true. Oh, yeah. I just start. Were you going to say something? Hang on. Just one sec. I just dove in. I dove in. It was the teacher impulse. Um, As a nerd, primary school teacher runs counter, yet at the same time. Thank you. I mean, it was it was something I saw in a lot of books and liked how it looked. I would say it's more visual than anything. When you when I'm writing and I'm writing fast, I won't have quotes in the draft. And then when I put them back in, in a lot of stories, they look distracting. They look like hair, you know. So then I like the sort of streamlined look. And some stories they don't look like hair. They look fine. So I, I it's hard for me to say what in any given story works or doesn't work with the extra. But but I think, um, you know, a lot of writers, or we don't talk about writing as visual that much, but it is visual. The page is visual, how it's laid out on the page is visual, how words look, what words you pick. So if you have an interest in, in a, a visual word, like moon, because it's the harvest moon, which means what again? And it's the first moon before the equinox. Oh, first moon before the equinox. Oh, nice. Up long enough for the har farmers to harvest their corn. I like that. Anyway, so so I like the look of that word so that there's a visual aspect to the quotes more than a thematic aspect. In the small commentary, you added, I was reading along, you added, I don't know what the term is, they describers, descriptors? I added, she said, he said, yeah, it's easier to understand. Yeah. Yeah, it's easier to follow. Yeah, because I'm not, I can't change voices and be like, Sloan was said in her voice, so I, he said it's easier. Yes? I'm curious about your um, writing ritual. My writing ritual. Well, it's interesting. You're catching me at a really interesting turning point because <laughs> since 1995, which I was thinking this as I was driving over, that's a really a long time ago. That's 18 years. Is that right? September of 1995, I started grad school and I thought I'd write every day in the morning. So I started a routine that started with an hour and a half and I had a really rigid routine and I developed it into two hours. And I've talked about that a lot at readings and I have a lot of interest in thinking about routine and how that affects process because it's been very helpful to me. And I just had twins and I can't write for two hours in the morning. I'm not going to be able to write for two hours in the morning for a long time. So. At the same time, I've been doing it for so long that I'm kind of intrigued by <laughs> what the new ritual is going to be. But I respond well to structure. So I don't feel like it can be just right when you feel like it. I don't, that doesn't work very well for me. So I think it might be like leave pads of paper around the house and write a sentence each day. <laughs> but not even yet. Like maybe next month. That'll, you know, like so, so something, I like it to have a rule in place because I think the, the way creativity and rules butt again against each other is very helpful to me and I find very interesting as opposed to kind of the I will listen for the muse when the muse hits because my muse is more conservative than stories are when they're they're in a kind of more disciplined structure. Like if I feel like, oh, I have 10 minutes and I need to write a sentence, it's going to be a livelier sentence than if I wait until I think up a sentence, which will probably be a more conservative sentence. I don't know why that is, but I think it has to do with just like, there's probably some neuroscience behind it. So that's, yeah. So, I get, yeah, that's the overview of the answer. Yes. In, in the blue and then you. Yeah. 
instead of uh, reading your book, I listened to it as a book on tape. And yeah. And the comment you made about the visual. What did I miss? Oh, well, I mean, and I still have, there's all these different actors read it. How, how did it go? I mean, okay, good. I really want to listen to it. I'm I'm excited to to hear how they did it. Um, I mean, the visual. It's yeah. It's almost. I don't know. It's hard to say. Like it just depends when you're reading. If you kind of like to look at how a paragraph. It's one of the reasons I like Gertrude Stein is when you look at her paragraphs, the first impact is a visual impact that you see the word repeated so many times that it feels like you're looking at um, some kind of pattern and. And then you pick out meaning, and I think that's part of the way she sort of works. So, so I would say you're in some ways missing nothing, but that if you kind of like how things are laid out on the page, then it might be fun to to look at one on the page and see if it hits you differently than hearing it. You know, we process differently that way. But thanks for listening to it that way. Yeah. I'm curious about the painting. Yeah. Happened. Yeah. And if you've seen the Ah, good question. I have only seen it digitally. It's in a gallery in New York. I had a fantasy of buying it, but I think it's really expensive. <laughs> so it was like, maybe she's an up-and-coming artist, and, I, and it was like, no, she's totally, she's she's you know far enough away from that stage. Um, so I think seeing it live would be incredibly exciting and and a really cool way to to look at it. And what it is, just so the image is the moment of two or three women, I think, over tigers sewing them. Um, and she does a lot with animals and a lot with women and kind of work and fairy tales. So all these things together in a really unusual way. So I, I mean, a lot of her images are very evocative. Who else? Yeah. The LA Times referred to you as Hemingway on an acid trip. <laughs> that lady right there. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I, read, I read this book and I read Lemon cake, and I don't, I don't get it. <laughs> I don't understand what that means. What does Hemingway and an acid trip mean? No, I know that. What oh, okay. Mean, how, how, can, how can they compare you to Hemingway? Right. I mean, I, I won't, <laughs> Diana, should I defer to you? Uh, I mean, I guess. It didn't hurt your feelings. It did not hurt my feelings. I thought it was a compliment. Oh, okay. It was a compliment. It was a compliment. <laughs> yeah. I mean, right, to be compared to Hemingway is pretty good. Um, I think of Hemingway as spare, and I'm pretty spare, but then the, the plot lines are, are kind of out there. So that's the way I took it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anytime anyone drops a major writer as a comparison in a review, it's pretty great. <laughs> I think we, we went right to the cover of the, of the paperback. But you can ask her. She's sitting right there. Yeah, she's sitting right there. Diana Wagner wrote me a great review. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, oh, 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 over this way. Yeah. Oh. Uh, how come, what's part two, or why parts? Oh, why parts? What yeah. Is, am I supposed to get the distinction? Not, well, okay, so the parts, I have, this is my third collection, and each of them is split into three parts. Initially, it was an editorial thing. Note that, that my editor was like, why don't we split it into three parts? And I think he was thinking of mini arcs inside a larger arc, which I think with story collections, I really do believe in that they're, although you can pick up and read any at any point, to feel like you're shaping the book in some way, I think is satisfying on the reader's end. And, or I'll think of it like the, the mixtape, um, or the burn CD, or whatever, the, the MP3, whatever it is now. Um, and so, so the three, so I just got attached to the three parts because it feels like you can't, it, it's easier to make a little, 
movement than it would be in an entire book of 15, 16 stories. So I think that's kind of become a way of thinking about it. So I would think about like which one might start and which one might end and how does that affect, well, how do you get that double space break? It again goes to the visual a little bit. What is it like when you finish one section and there's, instead of a double space break, you get white, a white page and it says part two and what does that do to your reading experience? A, like a recharge and then you begin part two. You know, what does that do to the next story? So it's, it's trying to kind of play with um, breaks in that way. Yeah? She goes to the airport. She goes to the airport. Why? Why does she go to the airport? Something else. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll say something more. Though I'm always really hesitant to interpret um, anything that I've written because I feel like that's the, that's the duet, right? That's the... But... Um, I mean, what I can say is when I wrote it, it felt abrupt when I ended it, and then I sat on it for a while, and then I felt like, but that is the ending. And, and I think, I guess all I can say about it, because I've thought about it for a while, so I do have an interpretation, but I really, I'm not going to say it. But what I'll say is I think the act of, you know, if you expect it to be the people cutting up the tigers and you end up seeing the tigers doing it to themselves, that somehow is, alters that narrator and her position in relation to the whole situation. So that's, that's... That's what I'll leave you with. But you know, you can totally disagree and make a different reading of it, and that's fine with me. Yeah. Um, I feel like I'm always so moved by the way that the magic in your stories or novels is an example of whatever the character is struggling with, like the metaphor for their mm. human condition. And Thanks. But I wonder, do you think about it that way? Like, mm. if you were writing about a character, say, that was dealing with grief, would you think what is or No, and it's a great question. Did you guys hear that? So, so what you know? Do you think of the metaphor of grief in terms of magic? And I think I have to really push against that because I think what happens is if it happens that way, and there's a one-to-one -one relationship between the metaphor and the magic, then I think it it reduces something. So it has to be more intuitive in terms of feeling like um, I'm drawn to writing about this ogre, I'm drawn to writing about this tiger, whatever, and then to know that it's gonna get, inf if it's working, it's gonna get infused with an emotional life. Like that's the thing driving the story. The magic is a kind of way access point into the emotional life of the story, but that's the key. That's the only reason the story is working. Um, and so, and, but I think it's, um, like there's a great quote, a Donald Barthelme quote, where he's talking about this Rauschenberg goat and tire that was in a museum and he was so consumed with thinking about the goat and the tire and like why is the goat compelling and with the tire and why is this, what is my experience of this thing and he couldn't break it down, like he kept being drawn to breaking it down and he couldn't break it down and he said something about how he feels like art should both invite and repel interpretation, which I thought was as good a definition as I'd ever heard because of that idea, which is that I don't want to feel like you could say in a multiple choice quiz, the tigers are this. But but it's tempting, right? Because that's often how we're taught to read literature or how we're taught to look at paintings or how, we're, you know, that we're often a little bit questions at the end of the chapter. Um, Good man is hard to find. The the misfit is, you know, whatever. And Flannery Connor is a great teacher on this, right? Because she's sort of like, no, you can't do that. So so instead, to think of like being drawn to the meaning, but also not being sure what the meaning is yourself, but to feel somehow an engagement with the piece, so that the emotion you know is in there, but you may not know exactly how it 
fits, what it means. But I think, for me, the meaning is less crucial in the writing process, and I feel like if the story works, I'll understand the meaning later. And I feel like a, a reader who likes that kind of reading experience will chew on it and understand the meaning in their own way, and some readers will not go for that, and that's okay, too. Sure. Yeah? Can you talk about writing short stories versus novels in your process outline or that work? Sure. Um, so I don't outline. I've tried to outline, but I've, it's never worked for me. So short stories feel, you know, short stories have more, um, you can skip time. I think you can skip time in a novel too, but I think um, in short stories you can play with, you can sort of race towards an end. And with a novel, I think in order to develop, you have to keep opening up a scene. You have to keep, you know, uh, widening and finding out more and more. In short stories, I don't think you, you can kind of close things down and suddenly be like, she left for the airport, <laughs> you know? Like, that's not a novel move. Like, you can't, you can't do that. And so, initially, I feel like that was very much more my instinct, and then I think it's been something to kind of try to experiment with, of that idea of learning how to write a scene and developing a scene and letting that scene uh, give birth to another scene and then not outlining but but having then piles and piles of scenes and then starting to think of what a shape might be that in, that the best scenes work toward basically because I think that I mean the way that I'll teach and the way that I think about writing is that if you follow the language or you follow the work itself it will uh, like where the work is um, alive and interesting it will form a structure that structure doesn't have to be imposed upon it because I think when that happens often, uh, the structure feels a little more contrived. Sure. Yeah, Donna. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that relates to your question, which is like, what if you start to see a symbol as a symbol and you start to unpack it? And I mean, someone once was like, they throw a random thing in the story to kind of get the brain off its analytical mode, which I think is an interesting tactic, you know, to say like, suddenly <laughs> a rabbit. Boom, and and because your mind, you know, my mind, pick, I really believe in all that kind of unconscious structure. So I don't feel like you pick things at random. I think you pick something that is a little buried, and so, um, and that the ultimate story or novel position is to kind of know what you're doing and to kind of not know what you're doing, and that that's a very productive space to be in when you're writing. So, um, so yeah, I think if you start to think that you know what something is, um, oh, another. This is tangential but it's it's the same thing which is that George Saunders does this beautifully as soon as you smell the meaning you put it in the story immediately so let's say you're writing the story and there's the symbol of a whatever give me something someone a cat okay um, and you start to be like the cat is the symbol for grief right and then and then you put that in the next sentence and George Saunders does this time and time again where I'll be reading a story and I'll start to be like oh it's a story about this and then it's the next sentence which takes me it like takes the ground out from under me as a reader and suddenly I feel like what's gonna happen next and there's something wonderful about that instead it's the same as if you think you know the ending and you feel like you're writing towards the ending and you feel like okay I know the ending and it starts to feel really predictable then just move up the ending because as soon as you move up the ending the story refreshes itself and you're like I have no idea what's gonna happen so so I think it's it's continually um, 
yeah, taking ground out from under your feet in that way and seeing like, okay, I'm now declared that the cat is grief. Murakami does this a lot too. He'll be like, here are some things that are happening in the story. Right now we have this, this, and you're like, okay, I've been noticing that too. And he's like, okay, now <laughs> on to the next scene. And you're like, what are we doing here? And then you don't know what's going on. But it really feels like it's kind of a nod to himself and the reader of saying like, I don't really know where I'm going, but I know that you're smart and I know that you're, you're thinking about things too. But I also know that it's bigger than that. You know, it's bigger than just this cat equals grief. One more question. Revving up. I'll be up till midnight. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, if there was one story in this collection, well, the red ribbon, which is the second story is so, I've been working on that story for so long. So it took me a long time to get the ending. I started that story 20 years ago with the idea of a woman asking her husband um, if he would pay her for sex. So I liked that idea, but it was like eight pages. And then it developed into 15 pages, then it scaled back. Like it just kept changing, and then the whole red ribbon idea came in. So it was, that one has just taken a while, I think, to settle into itself. And it often will happen too that I'll just get frustrated with the story and I'll put it aside sometimes for like a couple of years. But then it's really nice when you go back like on a writing day in that two hour block when I would be like, I have to do something in the two hour block. I would, you know, go and scour, like find all the old files and there would be something like a story like that and I'd read it because I'd need to entertain myself because I'm so bored because it's in the two hours. Da, da, da. Um, and I'd be like, this is better than I thought, which is really, it's the same thing, it's the opposite, the, you know, the mirror image is you write, have a brilliant writing day and the next day you look and you're like, it actually sucks, like that's the bad side, but then the nice one is you're like, oh, this story doesn't work, and then you look and you're like, it's actually way better than I thought. So um, that can be, you know, that's why you shouldn't throw stuff away, and that's, that was, I think, one that, that kind of kept returning back. And it's nice that it, you know, it's finally in a book, 20 years later. Thank you for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.